Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 29. And uh, actually, we will close out chapter 29 today in just a little bit as we move on through here. But I always kind of like to kind of give a bridge from last week to this week. And if you're visiting here today, we're, I've been in the book of Proverbs for uh, quite a while now, studying it verse by verse, in many cases word by word. And uh, we're coming down to the end of it and uh, got chapter 30 and then chapter 31. And uh, we'll uh, finish it up and then we'll see what God wants us to do uh, from from that point on. Now, last week, we examined verse 25 and it was on the subject of of fearing man and uh, that being a snare to us. And we talked about and I preached about, you know, the concept of having courage and not allowing the world, or even in some cases, Christianity, to to bully us. And I showed you the model example in the Bible was the Apostle Paul, and and how he never feared the face of man, neither when he was dealing with the churches that he was working with and establishing, or uh, in the face of the world when he went before uh, Rome at the end of his life in the last part of the book of Acts. And he's a great example for, for all of us. He declared one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I'm sure it's many of yours too, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And that is such a true statement. And as you study his life, he lived his life as he preached. Powerful preaching the gospel, declaring the gospel wherever he went. And as I said, never was afraid or ashamed of anything that God had done for him. And, you know, and it seems that today, and we talked about this last week, that God's people are uh, basically afraid of everything. Uh, They fear everybody. They fear everything. And, uh, you know, I talked last week about cowards in the ministry. You know, I've seen all my life in the ministry and, and seen it in many, many ways in many, many cases. It's always been a strange. I told you about Ian Paisley last week, who actually is a hero of mine. And uh, but uh, you know, it's it's just what it is. And you know, I had another friend of mine who he's passed away now, but he was probably he is probably one of the greatest street preaching evangelists that you would ever ever meet in your life. This guy was uh, he was fearless on the street. And he worked down through Central America and, and, and all those countries down there. And <clears throat> literally, I mean, uh, he was, he was a, a powerful preacher. And he would go into any scenario uh, for the gospel to preach. It's an incredible situation. I watched him. I've been on, was on many trips with him. And I watched him, you know, in his element, <clears throat> going down there. And, you know, we would go into these little cities in Central America, and we would spend the day, you know, passing out uh, tracks and, and flyers that there was going to be a movie in the square that night, and they'd show some goofy, stupid Christian movie in Spanish, you know, that uh, that nobody up here would even watch. But they would five, six, seven hundred people would come out for it. And after he was done, you know, after the movie was done, he'd get up and he'd preach, and there'd be hundred, two hundred people get saved. Uh, it was, he was an incredible guy. I watched him one time. I watched him one time where this little girl was selling uh, baked goods, and he went over there and he was talking to her and invited her, and she said that she would really wanted to come, 
but her mom wouldn't let her come unless that all of the bakery goods were sold because they needed the money. He went back and he bought everything that she had just so she could come to that, that meeting that night and that little gal got saved. Uh, it was incredible when it came to those kind of things. But at the same time, when it came to an issue on the Bible or it came to standing up for something with the other pastors, uh, he just didn't have it. And I've always been amazed at these guys that can do it in a situation like that, but when it comes to their peers, when it comes to the people who they're shoulder to shoulder with, you know, people that they know, that they just, they just cannot stand and take a stand for, for anything. And, you know, I've seen it all my life, and, you know, it, it bothers me because, you know, I would think that if a guy could take on the lions in Central America and hold the line that, Boy, when you come back to your own contemporaries, you ought to be able to do the same thing. But in many cases, they can't. You know, back in World War II, General George Patton <clears throat> was one of the greatest generals that we ever have. <clears throat> Most people don't even know who he is today or was today. But during World War II, uh, in France, he was going through a medical hospital. He always went through and visited the guys that were wounded under his command. He was very sympathetic toward that, even though he was one of the hardest generals that you could ever... I mean, he wasn't called old blood and guts for nothing, believe me. And there was a private there that uh, had succumbed to battle fatigue or mental breakdown because of all the battle. He was never really wounded. And Patton was so enraged by him being in the hospital with men who were wounded in battle, he slapped the guy and was going to take his own pistol out and shoot the guy until they got him out of there. And he was severely criticized for that and, you know, almost lost his command over it. And while I don't agree any way, shape, or form with his action, knowing him the way you can study who he was, I understand his motive. He knew, of a, he knew a great truth that has been lost today, and that is that cowardice or fear will spread through an army like a disease unless it's kept in check. And that is so true in ministry today. He stated one time, I'll have no cowards in my army. And to him, courage was the key to winning battles or winning a war. And he just could not comprehend a man who, in his eyes, was a coward, even though if it was, in my mind, legitimate what this kid was going through. You know, in ministry, leadership to me has to have the element of courage up to it. We're up against a lot of things in the ministry, not only with the world, as we're going to talk about today, but also within the ranks of Christianity. There's a great departing from the faith today in many, many areas. And it's hard to find a church that will not only stand on the truth, but will tell you the truth because it's so easy today to fall back into that gray mush that uh, everybody just wants to kind of play the game. You know, when I begin to build people, and that's what God's called me to do, taking young men and young ladies and couples and moms and dads and who really want to make their life count for God, there's certain things when you begin to build them that you look for. And one of them is core character qualities, as far as I'm concerned, is courage. How will we stand in the face of the adversity that will come our way in ministry? Because I guarantee you it'll come. And uh, 
Christianity didn't get where it's at today down through the 2,000 years since the time of Christ by weak people. It was people who were willing to pay for what they believed with their own lifeblood and their family's lifeblood. And it brings about three things that need to be in a person's life to really be used of God and to be any kind of effective. And of course, the first one is honesty and truth, you know, you know, being honest. Second one is being open, allowing God to change in our lives on a daily basis if that needs to be what needs to be changed. And the third one is courage, the ability to stand and take a position when it needs to be taken. You know, my style of ministry, I'm a delegator. That's an alligator without a tail, but I'm a delegator. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, I, I believe that the best training that I can give anybody is on-the-job training. I don't have a lot of stock in, you know, going to a school someplace to learn something, though I understand that it's, it's valuable in many ways. But if you really want to learn the job, get out there and do it under somebody who knows how to do it already. And, uh, you know, I want people around me who do things better than I do. Uh, if everybody did it the way I do it, uh, you know, it'd be a, it, we wouldn't get a lot of things done. Many of you have better ideas than me. Many of you have uh, better ways of doing things than I do it. And I, I build and teach, you know, that a church will grow on that if you allow somebody to be who they are. We have discipleship lessons here, and they're, <clears throat> they're, they're fairly basic. I mean, they're designed that you could actually take them and teach them but, uh, face value, but I wanted to put them in an array that <clears throat> gave you the ability to develop your own style with the material. If you veer off the deal here and do this or do that, I don't care. As long as you accomplish those four goals and the person comes out, uh, I'm, I'm good with it. And when I put somebody in charge of something, like a ministry, you know, I, I, don't, I don't interfere with it. I, I really don't. I, uh, I don't try to micromanage them. I don't try to always go over and say, well, you should have done it this way because I know how to do it better than you. That, that, that's, that's not my style. I'll help them for sure. I'll advise them. Obviously, my years of experience, I can help you learn and get the most out of it. But, uh, you know, I've learned, unless it's something that's going to be a tragedy, I learned that you, I've learned that you can learn more about the ministry by a mistake that you'll make than you will somebody just always hanging over you and telling you what you need to do. And if, honestly, if I didn't, if I don't, you wouldn't be there if I didn't believe you could do the job, believe me. And I have a simple little rule that I follow that I tell people, you know, that when you're in command, then you command. It's your deal. You know, we have a unique church here, and, you know, we have a very close personal relationship, all of us, and you know, our, you, you, you know uh, it's a thing where uh, our time in the Bible together has really made us close. We're not where the pastor's up here and you're down here. You know me, I know you, you know what I, how I operate, I know how you operate. <coughs> you know, <coughs> I know your character, you know I have no character. We, we all work together. And I know you, you know me and, I, 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 and, 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 and how I do the ministry by the book. And uh, you know what I expect. If you're going to be in a job, I expect you to do it just like I would do it, by the book. You can put your own self in there and adjust yourself around and be your own person. I don't want you to be me. But at the same time, <clears throat> I, we have a way that we do things, by the book. 
and I expect you to do the ministry under me uh, as I would do it, exact. Making sure you cross all your T's and dot all your I's and make sure everybody gets what they need out of it. And uh, it's one of the areas that I watch for in things like that is courage. Because when you're, when you're in charge of something, when you are put in charge or you're a quote-unquote leader, you know, you'll have to make some hard calls. You know, we get the idea that, and I've told you this before, we get the idea is leadership is about ability. Leadership is never about ability. Leadership is about taking responsibility. And sometimes you have to be responsible for the hard calls just like you have to be for the easy calls. And in the ministry, and when you're dealing with something or you're in charge of it, you know what? You're going to have to deal with some issues that come up. And the last thing I want you to do is looking over your shoulder. Now, I may, you may come to me and say, hey, we got an issue here and a problem here. My answer to you is in 99% of the situations, deal with it. And you take care of it. And, uh, you know, sometimes it will involve people that you are friends. Sometimes our friends will get into something or decide they're going to do something that we know in the long term is going to be a disaster. And you'll have to try to tell them this or tell them that and deal with them on this issue, and, and uh, they, they, they don't want to hear it. And, you know, it's easy for us to be in charge when, you know, when everything goes good and come to the place where, you know, we, we don't ever have to get our hands dirty or don't have to deal with scenarios. But sometimes it's going to involve people that are your friends. And I'll tell you something else. Sometimes it's going to involve people that are part of your family. I've watched some of you people over the years, you know, take a stand against your own family that wasn't doing what's right. And, you know, I know that's a hard thing. I know that's a tough thing, but I know that's the right thing to do. I've seen people who, you know, that, uh, that somebody in any church that I've been associated with, it, and even in this one in times past, not so much lately, but in times past as we were young, somebody will take an attitude or do something or be, you know, uh, against what we do here and, and try to cause a problem. And, you know, and I've seen, I've seen them leave the church, and yet I've seen instead of the leadership dealing with it, holding them accountable, they just kind of blow it off and still kind of be quasi-friends with them, you know. I, I, I can't do that. I mean, I just can't. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, going back to our model, Paul had a problem with, with, uh, with, with Peter. Peter was teaching some things that he shouldn't have been teaching, and it was going against what Paul was trying to do. And he said over there in Galatians 2.11, but when, uh, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, for he was wrong. And sometimes you don't help people by just glossing it over. Sometimes you don't help situations by just going along and playing both sides of the coin. Uh, you know, uh, people want to be recognized as, as a leader and somebody in charge of something, but they never want to get their hands dirty. I owe my minister, I had people that somebody did something wrong, that person was in charge, and I said, they need, that needs to be dealt with, and you need to deal with it. So they go deal with it, but you know how they deal with it? Well, Bob told me this is what I need to do. That's not leadership. That's you staying queaky clean and putting it on me. Leadership is about making the hard calls, but it takes courage to be able to do that. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. Nobody wants to be the, you know, it's easy for you to let somebody else take the hit. But, uh, you know, real leadership is not about that. Real leadership is dealing with it. Dealing with it the right way, but dealing with it. 
And, you know, last week, you know, we talked about, you know, not fearing the face of man is what will be, uh, is what it will take in this spineless generation that we live in. Everybody's afraid of everything, especially in Christianity. And I gave you out of Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, three areas about being courageous. I almost said contagious, but that's good too because you're courageous, should be contagious. And it's a thing where, you know, and I told you it was a great outline. It was a great little deal if you want to do it for volleyball or softball in a devotion. But it was, you know, three things that were to be have courage in. Courage to believe the Word of God in verse 6. Courage to obey the Word of God in verse 7. And then courage to rest in the Word of God in verse 9. After the service, Sunday, Troy McKinney <coughs> came up to me and he, he told me that verse 9 was really uh, his key verse in his life and something that he really, you know, he really uh, held a lot uh, in his world and it really was important to him. And, uh, you know, and I didn't read the verses last week because uh, I was just making a reference to them, but, you know, verse 6 talked about courage to believe the book, verse 7, courage to obey. But in verse 9, it says, And have I not commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, Neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. He's commanded us to be courageous. God, like General Patton, will not stand for cowards in his army. And, uh, you know, he will slap you (laughs) if you do. And it's a thing with what a great postscript that was to last week's message. And I appreciate him uh, bringing that up. And his wife heard about it, and then she decided to cook the deer meat for him this week, (laughs) which is the double blessing of it all, all because of that verse. I don't know where you got the, the, the sausage that you brought for the Super Bowl. Did you make that yourself? No, I had it made. But it was great stuff. It was great stuff. It gave me gas, but it was great stuff. <laughs> now, I, can't, I had so much gas, the Arabs would follow me around, but it, it was good stuff. Loved it. But that's what fear will do to all of us. The fear of man will wind up for us being dismayed. You know what the word dismayed means? It means to be deprived of courage, to be taken from us. And today, you know, I want to close out chapter 29, and I I want to look at the last two verses. Now, let me just say some things to you here to kind of get you set up for this. You know, in ministry, the most important thing in life is position. Most people wouldn't think that, but it's true. You'll always remember that uh, in combat, in the military, your position will always be the high ground. You never want to fight a battle from the low ground. You never want to concede to the enemy the high ground. And for Christianity, it's the same thing. Christians always want to hold the high ground because high ground is position. And when you have the right position, listen to me carefully, when you have the right position, it gives you the right perspective. And when you have the right position, the high ground, and have the right perspective and see what's really going on, then you have a clear course of action. Christianity today, most Christians today, in their life, in their families, in churches, in their ministry, they have no position So they have no perspective. So they have no direction of the action. So it's just a lot of hoopla, a lot of service stuff, 
banging around doing all the funny things and fun things and doing everything that we do, but never getting really down to what needs to be dealt with. A while back, years ago, as a matter of fact, there was a, a movie on that came out uh, called Roots. It was a series, I believe. And the movie Roots, or the series Roots, was about uh, black Americans and, and tracing the black roots to back to of slavery. Very good thing. And I've often thought to myself, you know, that's the problem with Christianity today. And we don't have the courage we have because we don't even know why we even believe what we believe. We have no roots. And, you know, I think that an understandable history of uh, in America of Christianity is something that is totally gone today. In our verses today, in Proverbs 29, verses 26 and 27, we're going to talk about some of this, and hopefully you'll get a better position in life and a better position, uh, perspective in life, and hopefully a better course of action. Now it says this, and when I'm done here, Bill Tillman, you're back there someplace. I want you to stand up and ask the blessing on the service. It says, Many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. An unjust man is an abomination to the just, and he that is upright in the way is abomination to the wicked. Thank you, Bill. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Now, verse 26 says, starting out here, many seek the ruler's favor. Now, I want to talk about that for just a minute as we kind of dissect these verses and look at the principles involved in each one of them. In a nutshell, that's the world system. It's not what you know that gets you ahead in life, but rather who you know. And that's not always a bad thing, but it's true. And, uh, you know, uh, we, aligning yourself with somebody of power, importance, in this case in the verse, a ruler, to gain the advantage and favor and position by associating yourself with them. Getting rid of its riches, power, or as I said, position, status, moving up that proverbial ladder of success that we hear so much about. Now, we call this, in just being open and honest, we call this bootlicking. We call this apple polishing. We call it sucking up. We call it buttering up. Yes, there's a couple other phrases I'd love to use today, but I'll refrain from doing that. But uh, you know what I'm talking about. You see it in politics. I mean, when a man becomes president, any president, you know, the being the president of the United States is without a doubt being the, is the most, you're the most powerful man in the world. There's no question about that. And it, you always see it, no matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican or wherever. People will then align themselves to that man. They'll support him even when they don't agree with him or even don't like him. They will help him. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll stand by him. But they always want something back. And, and that's just the way that it works. President Trump, 
Now, you know, I'm not political, so I it doesn't matter one way or me or the other. Somebody said uh, the Democrats are full of crooks. Somebody said the Republicans are full of crooks. They're both right. There's politics without Jesus Christ coming back and sitting on the throne is going to be corrupt. Just that simple. But having said that, getting that off my chest, and I do feel better now, President Trump just got acquitted uh, of his impeachment charges, uh, almost 100% by Republicans. I think one guy uh, wrote against but he had an attitude about him anyhow. But, you know, but don't be fooled when you read that. I mean, most of those guys who voted for him to protect him and, and, and do what they did, they don't like him. They didn't do it because they're buddies. In Washington, D.C., you do those kind of things along what they call party lines to gain favor. You know, say, oh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You take care of me here, I'll take care of you later. And the rewards will be down the line, and not maybe the next day, but in time goes on, it'll be the assignment of cabinet positions to somebody. Somebody wants an ambassador job, and he says, well, you stood by me, so yeah, you can be the ambassador here. You know, it'll be, it'll be some kind of, you know, uh, you're going to go up for re-election and I'll come and campaign for you. Uh, you took care of me and I'll say all kinds of nice things about you to get you re-elected. That's how it's worked. In Washington, this is called the old Potomac two-step. That's a dance, the two-step. The Potomac is a river that Washington is. Why don't you guys ever read anything besides <laughs> the comic books? And it's called the old Potomac two-step. And it's simply you align yourself with a president, a ruler, as the verse says, and then you seek his favor. It's business as usual in, you know, in politics. Certainly uh, in the business world, uh, it happens all the time in the corporate world too. And yet, you also see it in Christianity. Um, one of these days, I'm going to write another book I can see John cringing now as I say that. Uh, I come out with a, you know, a five or six volumes on church history, and uh, we're working through that. But at some point, I'd like to focus on what I would call an understandable history of Christianity in America, going back from the beginning of America and then right up to where we're at today. I think it's probably, you talk about gaining position and perspective and then getting a course of action. It, it, it would be a study of a religious political science of a system. How that America in the last 200 years, you will see the rise and the fall of religious groups that will follow the exact same agenda as they do in Washington. And they, that verse over there that our text today is exactly what Christianity gets into. And maybe I can just give you a little light on it this morning, but it's one of the most incredible things. And I'm just going to tell you right now, you will never be effective. I read a book one time, and I've told you this many, many times. I cannot remember the guy who wrote it. It was some guy out of England years and years and years and years ago. And he said, the job of every Christian is to determine what is the spirit of the age in which he lives and then take the Word of God and everything that he has within him and spend the rest of his life going against that spirit. That was one of the most profound things I ever read in my life. And it is so true because God's people today, they don't know where they're at. They have no roots. They get up and they go to church on Sunday just like cattle go to, a, go to the slaughter. 
They follow the crowd. They go because of the music. They go because of, the, of, of, of everything that uh, you know, goes on. It's a, it's a light show. It's a smokescreen show. They're dancing on stage. They're doing all these things. It's an entertainment center. But they come away with no perspective. They go to churches like that 5, 10, 15 years, and they grow nowhere. There's a reason for that. And I think one of the most amazing things of American history is, is how this thing went from where it used to be to where it's at today. We were talking yesterday with some guys, and, and I was talking with them, and they, one of them said, and they said, can you believe it? Can you believe that we have a chance of having not only a president, but the first lady will be a first husband? A gay guy running for president who has a husband that's a man, two men. And he said, can you imagine 30 years ago that would have been unheard of in America? But that's where we're at. How do we get there? How do we get to that point? I mean, do you think that 30 years ago that that was, I'll give you another one. I'm not fighting anybody. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me who becomes president because at the end of the day, Jesus is going to come back and kick the fire out of anybody anyhow. Could you imagine 30 years ago us putting a socialist in the White House? Now, if I'm offending you because you're a socialist, I, I don't mean to. I'm just talking here. I don't care. I mean, I don't care. I mean, uh, you know, if I, it's one of those things where a socialist is just a step cousin to a communist. And then you know how to go back and look at some of the great socialistic countries like Cuba. I'll tell you the greatest socialist that ever was was, was, uh, was Lee Harvey Oswald. He was a socialist. People lose sight of those things. They've completely missed today. And it's completely gone by the writers of history. Nobody even sees it. How Christianity got to where it's at today. Now, I, I count myself lucky. I was born in 1950. That may mean not much to you, but to me, uh, it, it gave me both sides of the century. When I grew up in the 1950s, it was still the throwover from a country that had just licked everybody in World War II and, uh, you know, had some great values. And I, I, I remember when I went into school, we prayed in school every morning. They read a Bible verse every morning. I remember in my day in school that when Easter came about, it was the resurrection of Christ. And they'd bring a preacher in because uh, I introduced him. I remember I was just a little kid and they asked me to introduce the preacher. My mom was so proud of me, went out and bought me a brand new suit. No, she did. And I remember I had a really bad infected finger. Oh, it was terribly. And they went in and took my fingernail out. And they had it all taped up. And I was very conscious. I was just a little guy. I couldn't be more than the sixth or seventh grade. Maybe not even that far. I was just a little guy. And I had this big white bandage on here, you know. And I had to go up there. And the teachers, they had me introducing the pastor. And I had to come up in front of everybody and greet everybody. And then I had to say, Today we have a speaker, reverend, and, and, you know, point to him. And I had this big white thing on my finger, you know, pointing to him. I was conscious. But that's, that's, that's why I'm the way I am today. 
He got up and he talked about Jesus Christ in public school. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood for the sin of mankind. Try that today. Now, how did we get from that point to this point? How did we ever get from when the book of Acts closed down in Acts chapter 28 and Sears and Kmart and Walmart opened up? How did we get there? And I was fortunate in the world. I guess, you know, I mean, at least I had to pay attention. I, I looked back once I got saved. It gave me incredible position, which gave me great perception, which gave me a course of action. Because I actually seen the way it was when it was supposed to be that way. And then I actually watched it change. And if I could... When I do this book at some point in time, or I don't know when, maybe I'll never get it done, but I don't know. But it, what I would do is I would start and I would show you that in the 1900s, the very beginning of the 1900s, there were three major Baptist groups that filled America. Now, there were no charismatics yet. They didn't come along till later. There was no evangelical churches at that point. Neo-evangelicalism had just started in 1900. There were no churches that would call themselves or Christianity, which is it is today, which is known as neo-evangelicalism. didn't exist. You had Baptists. I'm sorry. That's all you had. Oh, you had Methodists. You had Presbyterians. You had your garden variety Protestant churches. But the main line in America in 1900, going back into the, was Baptist Church, and they were in three groups. You had the American Baptist, which is sometimes called the Northern Baptist, and then you had what the General Association of Baptists. Lauren knows about that. He came out of a GRB church up in Iowa. We've talked about it many times. But the granddaddy, the biggest one, was a Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, back in that day, they had 32,000 churches across this country. Seven major seminaries, their number one being in Louisville. 32 uh, uh, what I would call senior seminaries or colleges, 21 junior colleges, and 39 hospitals all across this country. And what happened was, is by the time, you know, by the time they got into the 1930s, the neo-evangelical and all of the stuff had come in and they were in total apostasy. They're teaching evolution in their seminaries to their students. They're teaching that the story of Adam and Eve was a fable. They're talking about the fact that Noah's Ark wasn't true. And they turned out over seven or eight generations of preachers that were in complete apostasy and the whole mess. You take the American Baptist churches, the biggest church they got down in Florida. You walk into the sanctuary there and there's a statue of Jesus Christ, Buddha, and Confucius. Take your pick. Well, and I'm going to come back into this in just a little bit. I'm just kind of walking you through. Around 1950, that all began to change, maybe a little bit before that. And we see with a guy by the name of J. Frank Norris, which I'm going to talk about here in just a little bit as we walk back through this, we see what we would call the birth of fundamentalism. 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And this will be the great age of, of the Baptist fundamentalist movement, the churches. And I wish I had time to get into all of this in great detail. This is where you find all these churches called Baptist temples. 
You had Canton Baptist Temple, which I came from. You had Akron Baptist Temple. You had the Kansas City Baptist Temple. You had the Lima Baptist Temple. I mean, you had the Akron Baptist Temple. I mean, you had the Maslin Baptist Temple. These are all churches where guys who broke out of the Southern Baptist Convention with Norris because of the apostates they were in, and I'm going to show you in a minute, started their own system. And then as we moved on through up through the 80s, into the 1980s and the 90s, those big churches are all gone today. And now we have seen the redevelopment and the establishment of what we would call the neo-evangelical churches, also connected with the neo-orthodoxy movement. And the charismatic movement, of course, went in the middle of it. Neo means new, and it now means a new evangelism. And it takes the Bible from the common man, that's what neo-evangelicalism was all about, and puts it back into scholarship. And now we have seen all this happen in just a hundred years. And God's people know nothing about it today. The average Baptist going to a church today is buying it like a sucker, like cut off baloney, and they don't even understand their own roots. If they did, they'd be out of those dead Baptist churches and out of those dead evangelical churches that used to be Baptist that took it off where they have the dancing on the stages and they have all the smoke and the lights come down and the pastor comes out in a cardigan sweater. Mine's in the laundry today. And sit on a stool and, and, and give you whatever they give you. God's people today have no roots. You see, it's not enough just to know what you believe. It's just as important to understand why you believe what you believe. You can never get a perspective, a position, or a course of action without two things. A witness of history lining up to a witness in the Scriptures. And if you don't have that, then you got nothing. And you know what? You know what the most tragic thing is? God's people today don't care if they don't have nothing long as you got the band up there, as long as you got the dancers, as long as you got the, all the fun things that's going on, uh, you, don't, you don't care about those things. Because we have, we, Christianity in a Bible format has died in America and nobody even went to the funeral. And each of these three, you see verse 26, our verse today uh, playing out. Politically, the favor of man. In the Christianity, in, in churches, the jockeying for position of pastors within the, the hierarchy of whatever movement it is. Now, for me, I can speak about fundamentalism. I can speak about neo-evangelicalism, and I can speak about the Southern Baptist mindset and that back there because, to me, it's a 50-50. I was born at the time when I could look back and see one thing. I watched it and lived through this, and I saw where it went, and here I am today. I'm not somebody who got it out of a book. I'm not so I knew these guys. I preached for these guys. I heard these guys preach. I watched a man stand in a pulpit when he was 20 and he's 30 and talk about the King James Bible being the Word of God. And by the time he's 50 and 60, he no longer believes it. Now, you may have been satisfied to not find out why. I've always wanted to know why things are the way they are. I've never been satisfied with the status quo. A guy stands in a pulpit when he's 20 and he's 30 and he preaches the book and declares it and then by the time he gets into 50, he denies it. I want to know why that is. Maybe I missed something. Maybe he's right and I need to be where he is. Don't think so, but I want to know. 
I've never been satisfied with that's just the way that it is. I've never been satisfied with a little cliche in Baptist churches, well, don't rock the boat. I'm a boat rocker. I'm sorry. J. Frank Norris could be called the father of fundamentalism. He was the fair-haired boy back in the 1900s and the 1920s and 30s of the Southern Baptist Convention. He grew up in it. He was their protege preacher, and brother, he could preach. But he started to preach against the system that had produced him because he saw all the corruption, all the godlessness, all the filthiness that was going on in what they were teaching in the seminary, denying Jesus Christ's virgin birth, denying the Bible itself, denying, and he took a stand and he turned his preaching from that to that. And brother, I'll tell you what, he, he, he left the Southern Baptist Convention and broke with it uh, around 1930. And when he left and went out of that, he took a bunch of the preacher boys that were in that, that were where he was at. And that became the, that became, uh, this is a key word now you want to remember. This became, he started what has been known as the World Fellowship. And it was all these guys that, that were in the Southern Baptist who came out of the Southern Baptist with him because they took a stand because of the courage that they have against those uh, what they were teaching. I'm from the Canton Baptist Temple, Dr. Harold Henniger. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. He or they ordained me and sent me out back in the 70s, and I, I grew up there, got it right. My mom and dad were charter members in that church. He was one of J. Frank Norris's boys, as was Beecham Vick as was John Rawlings. All of these guys came out of that, and what happened when they left, they began the, they began the World Fellowship Movement, but God, God wasn't done with that. Norris was a character. I, I, anybody, there's people down in Texas that they'll spit every time they say his name. That's where he was from. He started two of the largest churches in the world. Pastored them both. One was in Dallas-Fort Worth area. And the other one was up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Between the two churches, over 30,000 members. He'd fly back Sunday morning, Sunday night, and pastored both churches. I don't agree with that, but that's what he did. He had an associate by the name of Beecham Vick. And Beecham Vick came to the place where him and Norris had a falling out. No, he had an earthquake. No, it was the first atomic bomb way after the bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It blew up. And all of the guys that came out with Norris, Norris took the church down in Texas. He died in 1950. Norris took that church, but the church up in Detroit, Michigan, Beecham Vick, his associate, took. And then they took all of those guys. Here it comes. All of those guys now, this is the beginning of what we know as fundamentalism. I'm, get, I'm going to get to a place here to show you how this verse plays. Just, I just got to get you there. And this is where all these great churches came from. Akron Baptist Temple ran 10,000 on Sunday morning back in the day. Canton Baptist Temple ran 5,000 at their heyday. All across this country, man, I'm telling you, it was a thing where they were just absolutely, absolutely uh, building tremendous churches. 
This was the great heyday of the Baptist fundamentalist. Most people know the word fundamental. They don't even know where it came from. And it was a thing where they were called fundamentalists because they left the Southern Baptist Church to get back to the yeah, fundamentals of the Bible. Unfortunately, as you'll see here in a few moments, they lost sight of that. And at the end of their heyday, the fundamentalist was somebody who was no fun, preached a lot of damn, and was mental. Fundamentalist. <laughs> Completely lost their moorings. And I'm telling you, it was a thing where they, they, they took their stand and they, 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 once they left, they started their fellowship. And it was called the Baptist Bible Fellowship. Keyword fellowship here. And of course, it was a loose contingency of 60, 70 in time, maybe 200, 300 Baptist churches. And uh, they followed right into the political system of the Republicans and the Democrats. They started a fellowship. They had to elect a president. They had to elect a vice president. They had to elect a secretary. All elected positions out of these churches. And then they had to have a capital city, which he was going to reign from. And for the BBF, it was Springfield, Missouri. And of course, you got to have a Bible college to go along with it. So it was Baptist Bible College down in Springfield, Missouri. And it was a thing where it went the same way that it always goes. Once you get outside of a New Testament local church and get into a non-biblical, spiritual, political system, you're dead in time. Later on, there were scores of fellowship by the time you get into the 70s and the 80s. Everybody, Jerry Falwell had one. Uh, you know, Jack Hiles had one, Hammond, Indiana. He ran 26,000 people in his church. There was one on the West Coast. There was one on the East Coast. There was Southwest Fellowship. There was a Northwest by Southeast by East West Fellowship. Everybody had one. 20 or 30 of them by the 1970s and the 1980s. And they all formed a political, religious structure that was just like the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah, you might have guessed it. The big-time pastors who had the big churches, they're the big dogs on top. They'll elect a president out of the big-time guys. They'll never elect one out of just a small church because they think that a big church is proof that you know what you're doing. So they became the big dogs. Then you had the middle-line guys who became the mid-line dogs. Then you had the little guys on the bottom who had the little churches, and they became the wannabe big dogs. And they'd have their little fellowship meetings every three or four months. And they'd all come in, and the big dogs would preach and lay down the direction that they're going. And everybody would amen, glory to God. And they'd set up rules and, and programs, and, and we're going to follow this. And send all your kids to BBF Bible College. Don't train them yourself just like the Republicans and the Democrats. And the pattern, let me tell you something, the pattern for every system outside the Bible structure of a New Testament local church where they try to find favor with man, like we're talking about this morning, will be a simple three-point movement. It starts with a man, it goes to a movement, it turns into a machine, fast, slick, and, and, and then it winds up being a monument, dead. And that's what happened. 
the Bible colleges got to the place where they became big business. Bob Jones University, Tennessee Temple, Bible, uh, B, uh, Baptist Bible College, Jack Hiles had one, everybody had one. And there's get people, here's how it worked. This is the verse, favor of man. This is how it worked. Everybody wanted, to, everybody wanted to be a doctor. There were so many doctors around you think God was sick. The idea was education. The idea was get. if you didn't have, when, when a pastor went to candidate for a church, they didn't ask him what he knew about the Bible. They didn't ask him how many souls he won to Christ. They didn't ask him what he did with people or what his method was for preaching. They wanted to know how much education he had. That's where it got to. And the Bible colleges played on that. Shoot, Bob Jones University passed out so many honorary doctor degrees, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's a Revelation chapter 3. God's got so many doctors, but the church is sick. And the idea was, you send your kids down here, you keep your kids funneling into our college, into our fellowship, and we'll have you come down and we'll have you preach a graduation. And when you preach a graduation, we'll put that robe on you, we'll put that funny, goofing-looking little hat on you, and we'll confer upon you a defender of the faith and make you an honorary doctor of theology. Oh, they all wanted that. It was a game. It was a game. It started out, but once it gets outside the local New Testament church and the pastor and the structure that God gave it, and you go into a political structure, I don't care if it's religious, I don't care if it's Democrats or Republicans, I don't care if it's your system of your little fellowship. You're dead. And fundamentalism died about 1980, 1985. Those big churches are gone. And we moved in now to the last phase that we're in in our study, and I wish I had time to develop it properly, but now we're into the neo-evangelical crowd, the new big megachurches, the megachurches that run five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people. The Joel Osteens on Sunday morning, he's an evangelical. Rick Saddleback out there in Rick Warren's, he's a neo-evangelical. This town is filled with them. They were once churches that had Baptist on their name, but they took it off. You know why? Because they wanted to move into this absolute mess of getting away from hard-line preaching and teaching from the Bible. So they all jumped ship, took Baptist off their name. Now they want to say, well, we don't want to be aligned with the denomination. Well, you idiot, by taking Baptist off your name and coming in to be a neo-evangelical, you just align with another denomination, you fool. The marriage actually took place. Nobody even saw it. Not only were none of you at the funeral of fundamentalism, none of you went into the marriage of neo-evangelicalism. What's wrong with you? Why, if you knew what I'm about to tell you, you probably wouldn't even go to that church. No, you would. Sure you would. Like them dancing girls. In 1994, the marriage took place right under our noses. It was the Catholic Evangelism Accord. Where the Catholics and all the neo-evangelicals, all the leaders got together with the Catholics put their arm around each other, cooked hot dogs and, and marshmallows and sang kumbaya and came up with a chord that the Catholics and the neo evangelicals signed that gave us 
and said that we will work hand in hand together for the evangelism of the world in the next millennium, the year 2000 on. Right under your nose. Not only did you miss the death of fundamentalism, you missed the marriage between the whore, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and what took over after the Baptists went there, down there, down the sewer of their world. This is why Baptist churches are taking their names off, jumping ship. Now, I need to say this to you, so to put it into some kind of perspective, and I feel like I'm doing this a great injustice this morning, not being able to give you everything and just kind of pick and choose here to get you to have the picture here. But I want you to know that all during this time, the Southern Baptist Convention back, or back in the day, the fundamentalists in their day, and then the, uh, you know, the neo-evangelicals today, all the time that this was going on, God had his faithful few that were still doing the work. In the Bible, they're called the remnant. God always gets the work done with a remnant. There were guys like Charles Billington. There were guys like Jay McGinley. There were guys like Parker Daly up the street here. There were guys like, uh, you know, Oliver Green, Harold Seitler, Bob Gray. Thousands of them that never got their name anywhere. Nobody wrote about them. Nobody gave them a doctorate. They stayed out of that system, and they just preached the book that God gave them. And boy, you talk about a perspective where the fundamentalists went totally right-wing back in the day. If your hair touched your ear, you couldn't come to church. That was the day of the hippie movement. Most of you don't know what a hippie is. Bosey's a hippie. Look at him back there. <laughs> he just a hippie that lost his hair. But, that's just, that's just a, but, but you know, it's a thing where the, the hippie movement was a rebellion against society. There was a bunch of young people coming up that in colleges went, to the, went, to, uh, went into the communistic movement. It was against this country in every way, shape, or form of what it stood for. They burned down buildings. They, they torched whole cities and burned down cars. They were so bad that they had to call the National Guard out. And then they sent the poor National Guard out. They never gave him any real ammunition. They just had to stand there with with a rifle and, and try to impose and use harsh language. Stepped at Kent State. I was in the Army back then, and Kent State University was besieged by the hippies. Nobody had bothered to tell them that the Ohio National Guard were always issued live ammunition with their M1 Grands. And they were on a hill bank and felt threatened, and this big crowd of hippies were coming up on them and going to beat them up and throwing dog manure on them and, and all kinds of stuff and going to beat them up and everything and the commander lowered their weapons and fired killed, killed eight. Oh, you'd have thought the end of the world come. I mean, it was a terrible thing. They wanted to put them in jail. They wanted to put them in, they wanted to do this for, they took all the ammunition away from the National Guard. Here were people that were burning down everything. How dare you take a stand and try to shoot them? In my thing, it was great. It was National Guard eight, hippies nothing. They tried to take our fort over, Fort Deffens. Little did they know, right up around the corner, they weren't going to storm the gate. Right around the corner were 300 Green Berets with nightsticks that were just chomping at the bit for them to come in. Never happened, but it would have been fun. And it's a thing where, you know, they would go to Baptist churches. And because they didn't wear the right clothes, and because maybe they didn't bathe as frequently as your starch white Baptist, or their hair was too long, they were met at the door and turned away and said, don't come back to this 
Baptist church until you cut your hair, take a bath, get some good clothes. There was a chance to reach a whole generation with a gospel, but we wouldn't do it because they didn't look right, smell right, or talk right. And now, you want to know the irony? You want to know the irony? Those same hippies are now leading in Washington. And what the fundamentalist did by going so far right wing that he got such a legalistic mindset that if you didn't follow the rules, if you didn't do everything the way they said it, you couldn't come to church. The Evangelical day has completely went left wing and went the other way. Now you can do whatever you want to do. You can drink beer and come to this church. You can do this. You can dance. We'll put on a light show for you. I mean, I mean, it's a thing where by the, the great preaching died by the 70s and the 80s and it was replaced with an artificial light from artificial chapels by artificial Christians who preached artificial messages. There was no power in it. There was no truth in it. it was, it's, it's situation ethics. Do whatever you want to do and it's okay. And they produced a theatrical church, an artificial church, whose job was to entertain you now instead of enlightening you, to excite you instead of rebuking you, to please you instead of correcting you. No doctrine. Bring the world's music in. Bring the world's preaching in. Bring the world's psychology in. And right in front of our nose, we have witnessed the death of Christianity. Because Christianity will only excel and only survive on the preaching of the Word of God straight, hot, and true. Now look at the last part of the verse. But every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. Now you got a little basic understanding here of how the, in this whole religious system was built on the favor of man. You do something for me, I'll do it for you. Just like the politicians in Washington. And it destroyed Washington and it destroyed Christianity. And all three of them went down the same way. Now that we're going, uh, you know, along with the last couple of weeks, we begin to see here that, uh, uh, you know, all the bootlicking, all of the payoffs, all of the bribes, all the buttering up will do absolutely nothing when Jesus Christ comes back and holds court on the throne of his judgment. And for an unsaved man, it'll be the great white throne judgment where he'll stand before God. He'll give an account before God. His name will not be found in the book. The Bible says he will, God will judge him on the basis of his works of what he did in relationship to what God did for him. And it says the small and the great, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. That'll be the little guy and the big guy. That'll be the little guys in the, you're going to give the hot dogs to this afternoon, and that'll be the big dogs in Washington that have destroyed this country. And there won't be any favors. There won't be any, you scratch my back. The Bible simply says in verse 12, and the books will be opened. It's this book right here, all 66 of them. And the, judge will, the dead will be judged out of those books which were written according to their works. And every politician, every unsaved religious leader will be lumped together in the lake of fire. Now for the saved man, it'll be the judgment seat of Christ. 
It'll be 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to how he had done, whether it be good or bad. Romans 14, 12, so, every, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And God will judge everything. God will judge every thought, every action for an unsaved man and his debauchery of a government or a pastor or Christians and Christianity who took the very book that God gave them, stepped outside its pages, did your own thing, set up your own kingdom, got your favor from man instead of the favor from God. And there's coming a day. God will judge every man saved or lost. The Bible says when this judgment comes, saved or lost, there'll be no bribes, there'll be no payoffs, there'll be no graft, there'll be no gifts, there'll be no favors. You will not find favor with God like you found favor with man. It'll be based on truth. The day he will judge the world in righteousness. Job chapter 21 verse 22 says, Shall any teach God knowledge, seeing he judges those that are high? He said in Psalm 58, 10, and 11, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily there is reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judges in the earth. In Psalm 67, verse 3 and 4 says, Let the people praise thee, O God, and all other people praise thee, and let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. The Bible says in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Jesus Christ. Wherefore he hath given assurance to all men that he hath raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 2, verse 16 tells us in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Genesis 18, 25 says, Shall not... Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You bet he will. And all the political positions in the world, whether it be in the government or whether it be in Christianity, whether it be in the Southern Baptist or in the Baptist fundamentalist or in the neo-evangelical, all the, all the playing of the games will end. There's coming a day when saved or unsaved will stand before God and nothing in this life that you trusted in will help you if it wasn't found in that book. And all the deals and all the favors and all the backroom negotiations and all the underhanded favors will do nothing in that day when we stand before a holy God to be judged by His righteousness. And for a child of God with a Bible, the battle lines are clearly drawn if you have enough courage to be able to take your stand on the wall. All down through the time in America of, of Christianity falling into apostasy, by a man-made man system, God's men have taken their stand and preached against it. Yes, the remnant. And for every guy that you write thousands of books about, like Martin Luther or George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, who were great men in their day, and there's probably more written about them than any other guys in history, you will find 10,000 to 1 guys that nobody wrote about that were doing the job. These are the nobodies. Nobody cared about, got no prominence, overshadowed by the big-time pastors and the politicians who did nothing but steal the credit for what the little guy did and then boast that they did it. 
And by 1990 to 2000, the lights of truth are completely gone out in America, except for a few little holdouts and the night fighters who stand and fight through that night. The lamps, they're out of oil. And now New Testament Christianity has slid into the apostasy of the neo-evangelical crowd, and it's all over. Look at verse 27. An unjust man is an abomination to the just. And he that is upright in the way is abomination to the wicked. Now this is a verse that you'll never want to forget after today. You'll never want to lose sight of this. You'll never want to kind of water this one down. You'll never want to try to sidestep this one because it's simply saying, no matter how good it looks, now how nice it is to you, now how it tries to court you, praise you, or get along with you. The world and neo-evangelicalism will never be your friend. Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? And the Bible lays out in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What fellowship hath light with darkness, Christ with Belial? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And your body and my body, if you're saved this morning, is the temple of Almighty God, and it needs to stay pure. And the only way it can is the doctrine of the book that God gave you. James 4, 4 says, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. You can't get along with it. It's like your flesh. You can't trust it. You can't parley with it. You can't pretend it's okay. You can't make deals with it. You can't think you can negotiate with it. The only thing you can do is separate yourself from it. Because there is no middle ground with God. Except in the minds of people who know nothing about God and how He works. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, He that is not with me, you're against me. And the Bible clearly gives you the principle that, hey, I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. I'm a pilgrim in a strange land. I'm an ambassador from a foreign country to try to show people the country that I'm now a part of, heaven. And verse 27 is so clear. The system of the world will always hate you. It will always be against you. Whether it's the Christian world that's out of the Bible and the mess and the posse that's in, when you have a King James Bible that you love and believe and they look at you like you're demon-possessed, the system of the world will hate you. It'll hate you and your Bible will be an abomination to them. That's okay with me because allow me to return the favor. And to us who believe the book and hold to its value system, this world system this old mess of Christianity is an abomination of abominations. The world or evangelicalism stands for one thing, to destroy the truth of God and to render Christi Christianity and God's people powerless, to make them afraid, to keep them in dismay, lack of courage. And we've seen it. We produce it. Why the churches around today, you couldn't find two guys that's strong enough to stand for anything in most Baptist churches. Not even the neo-evangelical. It's spread into everything. you got guys that believe the book, guys that believe and preach the Word of God, and people in it are afraid of everything. You hate, they hate you, and you hate them, the system. It's the basis for the great doctrine of the Bible called the doctrine of sanctification. 
or the doctrine of, sanct- uh, of separation lost today. When God saved you, he separated you from the world. In the mindset of evangelicals, God didn't separate you from anything. If they did, they can't find out what it is. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not, the Father. It's not of the Father, but of the world. And I'm going to tell you something. I wish I could have developed this the way I wanted to this morning, no time to do it. But I gave enough of it to understand you need to get a position in your life. And that position needs to form your perspective. And then that perspective, based on that position, needs to form your course of action. And some of God's people need to stand up and get some steel in their backbone and take a stand on what's wrong, when it's wrong, instead of worrying about what somebody's going to say about you, how they're not going to like you, or what they're going to post on Twitter or Facebook or in your face or up space or whatever the case may be. I'll tell you what, if you God's people spend enough time in email as they do on email, there'd be a great revival in Christianity. In life, seek the favor of God. Never seek the favor of man. I'll leave you with that. Jeremiah chapter 1 last week, be not afraid of their faces. God's given us a job to do. And there's adversity connected with it. It's going to be unpopular. We're going to be an abomination. We're sitting in a situation where all of Christianity has departed from the truth. And the few guys out there that are holding the line together are going to get severe. So what? Who cares? Dick Winters was a great commander of Easy Company in the 506, famous from the Band of Brothers movie. They were in Bastogne. And they were surrounded by the German 6th Panzer Division for almost 30 days. Nobody could get in, nobody could get out. Didn't have enough warm clothes. Some of those guys only had two rounds of ammunition for their rifles. No food, no nothing. The weather was 10 below zero, freezing frostbite. The Germans came down and captured the whole hospital and cocked everybody prisoner in there and took them out. They were completely surrounded. And uh, it was one of the most bleakest times. But, you know, they came up to, come up to him, and he was the, um, you know, 101st Airborne, and they said, uh, do you know, you know, Captain Win- or Major Winters, you know that you guys are surrounded? And he grabbed back, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. We're Christians. We're supposed to be surrounded. We're Christians. We're supposed to be hated. That doesn't mean that you hate back, but it means that you do take a stand and you have the courage to take it because greater is he that's in you that's in the world. And you have a calling. But the problem is you missed your calling because you lost your position. And when you lose your position, you lose your perspective. And then you get caught up in all the other things that don't ever mean anything. When the only thing that means anything is you declare in this book, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. Putting it out. Never fearing the face of man. Okay, I'm done. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father. We thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you.